We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Welcome to Transformative Principal. I'm excited to have back on the show for the second part of our interview, Dr. Grayson Moss. And Grayson, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So as we were talking in our last episode, I got really interested in some of the things that we talked about in the pre-show and talking specifically about identity and how identity is developed and things like that. And so you sent me over your dissertation. And because I'm a super nerd, I actually read not all of it. I'm not going to lie, but I read a lot of it and I really enjoyed what you were talking about. And you had mentioned that one of the things that intrigued you was this idea of that you were interested in science and you were really concerned about the kind of people who can become a scientist and who cannot. So can we start by talking a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you again for having me on and uh, allowing us the opportunity to discuss at length a little bit more about some of the things that we talked about previously. So jumping right in, I've always been fascinated by science I love, you know, not only studying scientific knowledge and scientific facts and things like this, but I've also been, as I, you know, thought more about science and how it gets created. I thought more about, you know, what it is and how it how it gets produced, who produces it, and then how what role it plays in our society. And then kind of merging that that passion for science that I had with kind of this passion for education. One of the things that I really wanted to investigate uh, in my doctoral research was this notion of who gets to become a scientist and perhaps more importantly, who doesn't and what role 
uh, do our schools play in helping to, let's say, funnel uh, students down certain paths? And not that they're deterministic paths, but uh, patterns do emerge and there are, there are trends at work. And so I saw that that dynamic uh, as a very fascinating one, one that I wanted to understand through and through and really pull it apart and show, uh, show myself and then show everyone else what I found. Yeah. And, and I think that that is interesting as well. And that idea of, of who gets to be a scientist. And then you mentioned a little bit, the idea of tracking, which we'll probably get into later, but how do you set up opportunities for kids to be successful in different areas? And there's a lot of, of different ways to discuss that and go about that. And, you know, one of the things that I want to start out with is this idea that that we have about science, one, that everybody can or should be successful at science and how that actually plays out. And so one of the things you wrote in the dissertation was that even back in the early, late 80s, early 90s, somewhere around there, there was this idea that that everybody could be a scientist. And what you found was that minority populations are still not well represented in uh, the scientific fields. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess the way that I approached this was that it, you know, it's no, it's no secret that there's underrepresentation in science, uh, cut along a lot of levels. But, you know, I wanted to know, you know, kind of why is that, right? And it's obviously not the case that certain groups of people, however you want to define the groups, right, whether it's along, you know, cultural and, and racial and ethnic lines, or whether it's around gender lines or whatever it is, this notion that certain people are, you know, perhaps better equipped to be scientists are, are just more fascinated with the subject more so than others. I mean, that's complete nonsense, right? So if it's not that, well, then what is it, right? Like what's, what's really, you know, at work here that is, you know, funneling uh, certain groups and types of people towards science as a as an activity and as a profession and others not as much, right? And so I think that the full answer to that question needs to be studied at many different levels in society. And so in fairness, I was only really looking at uh, what happens within the walls of our K-12 education system that might play a role there. But to, to go back to your point there about this notion of, of science for all, actually, that's a specific program that came out of the late 80s specifically to help solve the persistent and pervasive underrepresentation of women and ethnic and racial minority groups. And while this still remains an unmet goal because there is underrepresentation, um, and I should note, especially for English uh, language learners, which was the group that I, that I worked with most closely in my dissertation, that, you know, it's really an equity-minded approach that's been welcomed by many. I mean, hey, science for all, who could disagree with something like that, right? But it's it's actually been uh, criticized on a number of grounds that the uh, it, that science for all in and of itself doesn't serve necessarily as the primary motivation, but rather that it's more of, you know, it's science's relationship with, you know, uh, national security and uh, technological needs that are perhaps unmet and this, you know, uh, ability to kind of bolster ourselves for the future. So we need to have more and more of a science pool. So in that sense, it really becomes more of a utilitarian argument rather than one of um, like an equality argument. But I, uh, you know, irrespective of that, I think that science for all is still a very noble and worthwhile goal, uh, not only because it, you know, it pays to be scientifically literate, 
in our society. There are a number of decisions that you can make as a consumer in the marketplace or just as a, a consumer of information where if you have a proficient level of scientific literacy, that you're going to be that much better off. And so, of course, the flip side of that is that if you don't have it, then you are at, in a number of ways, a disadvantage relative to those that do. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about these these ideas of science being about more than just a content area, but that is actually interwoven into our society. And one of the things that, that you talked about was the idea that there is a political nature to science and that it, we we think of science as like, I think the word you used was it, it comes down from the truth clouds and it's not actually as big truth as we sometimes think it is. Can you discuss that? Yeah, absolutely. So this really gets down to the constructed nature of scientific knowledge. There are powerful reasons why uh, science has the reputation that it does. Uh, it does a lot of political work for us, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of, uh, you know, very classic, uh, you know, classic case studies in the role of science in terms of how it shapes uh, societal consumption and behavior and things like this are tied to whether, you know, hey, does the science support that it's healthy for us or does the science say that it's not? Or does the science say that it's a good thing to do or does the science say that it's not, right? So we, we actually look to science to, to guide us politically, societally in a number of ways. And I guess one of the questions is, well, why do we look to science and not other things to help us in, along those lines? And it's because there's no, you know, as the adage goes, numbers don't lie, right? <laughs> that if the, hey, if the science supports a particular uh, notion or, you know, platform or something like that, well, then you must be uh, pretty foolhardy to be on the other side of that, because how could you be on the other side of, of science, right? But when you actually, uh, when you get down to it, science is actually produced by people through a process that we've all collectively agreed to use. And uh, I guess one way of saying this is that if that process were to be structured differently, then perhaps the scientific facts and knowledge that we've come to believe as, uh, as you said, capital T truth might not be as such. Mm-hmm. So, and and this is, I think, a really important topic for education because we, when you say the numbers don't lie, we translate that into, well, standardized tests tell us how good or how poorly our kids are doing when that is a snapshot and life is not a snapshot. It's, it's a film strip. And so there's, there's a beginning, a middle and an end, and it's not just one singular picture. And yet we have, I believe mistakenly put a ton of reliance on this idea of data and science and numbers. That is a, a foolhardy quest for us to try to find something that will, will measure something that is as complex and, and individual as each person that is sitting in our class each and every day. And yet we put this great reliance on these things that, that really, I don't think we should be, you know, I think that we need to, we need to take a different approach that helps us educate kids in a way that helps them be successful and not necessarily, you know, just achieve a certain score on a standardized test, which unfortunately many schools are are at that point where that is the be all and end all. That's exactly right. Uh, So I think just to your point very quickly about tests. So tests 
you know, at best are supposed to be reliable indicators of something that we value, right? So let's say we value uh, intelligence or we value how much you know about a particular subject. Let's call that content knowledge, whatever it is, right? And so a test is supposed to be this tool, this instrument that we use to gauge reliably how, you know, how well we are capturing that desired outcome or how well that is, that is exhibited in a, in a certain student or group of students, whatever it is, right? However, at worst, especially with bad tests, <laughs> it doesn't do that at all, right? You can call them an unreliable indicator. And so, you know, one of the things that, first of all, I'm exactly with you on this one, Jethro. I mean, uh, I think the high stakes testing environment and what we put into tests, which actually in, in certain countries of the world, you know, can determine uh, your opportunities in life, you know, based on your, your performance on a, on a given test, you might even say it's intuitively obvious that that's not the way that we should be doing these things. But, you know, even for those for whom it might not be intuitively obvious, let's just think about it for a second, right? So a test, you know, I think it's a common experience. It was for me when I was growing up that, you know, the scores that you got in certain classes and on tests were then kind of reintegrated in my mind to tell me, hey, am I, am I smart or not? Am I good at this or not? When in fact, those tests weren't telling me if I'm smart or not, or if I'm good at something or not. All they were telling me is, was I good at that particular instrument on that day? <laughs> I could have taken a test on Tuesday and you just had a, a bad day. Maybe I had a bad morning or something and then maybe taken it on a Thursday with a different outcome. And then, you know, lo and behold, it would shape my perception of self differently. Uh, the teacher might have, you know, thought of me differently, these kinds of things. And it goes back to what we were just talking about, which is this, this notion of the constructed credibility of, of science and of numbers, right? This idea that there is no gray area. You know, if you get a 90 on a test, it's a 90 on a test. It's not kind of a 90 or sort of a 90. It's a 90, right? So Grayson, so, yeah. so right there, I think that's a perfect example. If you get a 90 on a test, it's a 90 on a test. And all that is, is it's a 90 on a test. It doesn't reflect how well you know the material because you can't judge that test whether or not that test was good or bad or a good instrument or a poor measure of what the kid knows, because that's really all that it is. And so I interrupt and, and make that point because that really matters. Because if the test is no good to begin with, then a 90 on the test doesn't mean anything. And so then how do you then assess whether or not a test is good or whether or not a piece of science is good or a piece of data is good? There's got to be things in place to be able to assess whether or not those are valuable measures of what we are uh, reliable indicators is the word you used before of what we're actually trying to measure the thing that we value. Yeah, that's exactly right. And to give you an example of, you know, I know that this was the topic of this conversation was to, to focus more on, uh, you know, exactly how we started out, but just to give us a, a quick little uh, tangent here. So one of the things that in the company that I work for, Art of Problem Solving, that has been, you know, that we've we've recognized in working with others that are trying to solve the, the problem of underrepresentation in math. Uh, one of the things that we've realized is that it's very hard to identify those, you know, the critical ingredients that that could potentially lead someone to be very good uh, very good at math. And, and I personally believe that anyone can be very good at math, 
But in terms of, let's say, identifying you know, high ability students at a very early age that perhaps come from disadvantaged backgrounds, right? It's extremely difficult to identify these kids because, you know, tests in that particular setting don't tell the whole story. In fact, they might not even tell a significant piece of it and they might not even tell that piece that well. So instead, when we are working with other uh, schools, we don't rely on tests to say, hey, because we, you know, we want to provide, you know, high quality materials and resources to students that need them that couldn't, that can't afford them. Uh, when we do that and we work with these teachers, we say, we don't care about test scores. We don't care about what these kids did in terms of the, the metrics. What we care about are the things that you can tell us as their teacher. For instance, uh, do they ask a lot of questions? Who are the students uh, that don't give up on the first try? Who are the students that are very precocious? Who are the students that might frustrate you as a teacher because they say, I don't get it. Tell me why that doesn't make sense. Right? <laughs> that kind of thing, right? And we've all had that experience as educators. And you know what? Like those are the skills. Those are the skills that we should be trying to capture in some way, not some, you know, artificial, hey, run through the process, get a number at the end of it, and then we're going to sort you accordingly. Because I'm increasingly convinced that the latter exercise tells us absolutely nothing at all. Yeah, you you are so absolutely right, and and the challenge is is that the um, Nick Fisher calls it that it is legislatively understandable. I know that's not the word that he uses, but I'll try to find the better phrase for that. But he has the the idea that the reason why we're dependent on test scores and uh, just listening to a Modern Learners podcast today, uh, Peter Block said in there that he that the schools have turned over to control their schools to state legislatures. And that is, it's it's easy for the legislature to say, well, this many kids were proficient on this test, therefore this school is a good or a bad school. And we're, we're just looking at the totally wrong data. And we need to be looking at those other things that give a better indication of the kind of person that a kid can become. And I'm with you that I believe every kid can be good at math and every adult can be good at math also. And yet we have tons of adults who say, I'm not a math person and, you know, just, just write themselves off right then and there when they're, they think they're not a good math person because they didn't do well in the way that they were taught math in school, which doesn't mean that they're not a good math person. I mean, it's just bizarre. It's crazy. That's exactly right. And, you know, to me, that's, that's a real injustice in a number of senses for the possibility of what those children and those, you know, now later adults for what their lives, you know, could have been, what their identity and perception of self could have been had they been uh, not so, you know, turned off by the entire experience of, you know, this kind of like indoctrination that happens in a lot of schools and, uh, you know, this uh, epistemological reproduction of these, you know, processes and procedures that, that just really suck the joy out of things. And, and there's something that, to, to bring it back to what we started talking about, there's something that's going on in school systems that I've witnessed firsthand, which served as the basis of my dissertation, that I think really illuminates how those channels can be dug even deeper uh, in a negative way, which is this, this process of you know uh, tracking or, or ability grouping. So the school that I worked with engaged in that uh, actually. So it's, you know, basically dividing students into groups to say, we've got a high functioning group and a low functioning group. And, and we can, I'll pause there for a second, but I just want to, I want to say one last thing. And then, you know, maybe you can ask me whatever you want to <laughs> okay. ask about it. But I think the thing there uh, that I've come to realize is that ability grouping 
is not a bad thing for the students that are put in the high ability group, right? <laughs> but it's definitely a bad thing uh, for the students that are put in a, in a low track. And I think that more so than anything, it's really about, you know, the negative perception of self that it begins to cultivate when kids are put into those lanes because kids talk to each other. They know who's in different groups. And, you know, there's, it's not too hard to internalize that if you're in the, the, low, the low track classroom to say, hmm, maybe I'm not that smart. Maybe I'm not that capable. Maybe I don't deserve to be here. Maybe I don't deserve to learn the things that the other kids are learning. Yeah. So let me start by sharing a story from my own family. So my oldest daughter has Down syndrome. So she is very delayed in her learning ability. And I say delayed intentionally because it takes her a long time to learn things. But that doesn't mean that she can't learn things. So then my second daughter is really quick at learning things. And so she's able to get information and understand it very quickly. And so for her, like we did not get her tested for gifted and talented for a long time. And then we finally did because we saw that she was getting a disadvantaged education because she didn't have the label in the current school district that we're in. And so instead of being given opportunities that should have been given to everyone, you know, and this is so keyed in directly to what we've been talking about today, that this idea of science for all, it's not science for all at the school that she goes to. It is science at a very basic level for all. And then the things that are actually engaging that kids actually want to learn about, those are only for the gifted and talented kids. So the gifted and talented kids are the only ones who get to work with robots or do programming or do coding or do virtual reality or drones or that kind of stuff. And so they're the only ones you have to be identified as that to be able to have a shot of, of experiencing anything like that. Everybody else watches like videos on YouTube about science and that's, and, and that's putting it at a very basic level, but it's, we didn't get her tested because we didn't think she needed it because the school she's attended previously, they have adjusted and given kids content appropriate for their level and push kids to all be excellent. And in our current district, it really has been only those who are identified get the extra attention and opportunities. And I think that is so wrong. But then I thought, you know, my daughter is not going to have these experiences unless we get her tested. And then we got her tested. And sure enough, she got that label. And so now she's considered gifted and talented, which I believe all my kids are gifted and talented in their own special way. And I believe every kid is that way. And it's our job as educators to find that. And so then my son, he went to go get tested for it and he didn't make it. Now, he is much better than his older sister at math and at English and is picking those or reading. He's picking those things up really, really fast. But because he didn't pass this one specific test, he also does not get those opportunities. And to me, that is just such a disservice to him and to every other kid who doesn't qualify on that one singular test, that it really is unfortunate. And, you know, we talked about that at home and helped him understand that that test doesn't mean everything and don't worry about it. And thankfully, his sister wasn't rubbing it in his face. But the point of all this is that, yes, the kids do know. And as I was reading the uh, the narrative about those conversations you were having with teachers and what you're experiencing with kids in your dissertation, it was unbelievable to me how clear it was to you as a 
a detached observer to see how much that was affecting the kids. And so these kids are developing this identity of who they are. And now they believe that they are in the dumb class or the dumb kid in the class. Like, how do we, how did we go so wrong? How do we get to that point? And then how do we overcome that once we get a kid who thinks they're dumb? Like, what do we do next? Yeah, that's so, you know, you you touched on a lot of really important points there. I'm just going to try and go back and respond to respond to a few of them. (laughs) One of the things that you, I I think I remembered all of them. Um, One of the things said uh, is that, you know, it's this notion of reconfiguring, you know, how we how we put labels on things. And it's not so much just a matter of the semantics, right? But just this, uh, let's call it a reorientation of saying, you know, okay, well, these given, given, you know, how we, let's say, measure and evaluate uh, success and excellence in schools, we'll draw a line in the sand. And if you go above it, you're going to be put in this group over here. And therefore, you get access to all these other uh, resources, materials and opportunities, right? And I don't disagree with that for a second. I think that that is the right thing to do. I think those kids especially need that challenge, because a lot of the a lot of the kids get placed into those groups, their needs aren't met where they're at, right? They're, you know, operating on a level of mastery, whereas, you know, some other kids that aren't at that, you know, at that level, uh, you know, just, they're just not there. However, for us to lose sight of the kids that don't get those extra opportunities and say, okay, well, you're going to get standard operating procedure and it's, you know, basically the greatest good for the greatest number, that's not working for those kids either. And I think that the, it's incumbent upon us as a society and uh, as school leaders to be able to say, and this is an oft used phrase, and I, I don't want to use it, you know, in the cliched sense, but I think it really does capture, you know, there's more work to do, but let's meet these kids where they're at. So just because we have this test that's supposed to determine, are you one of the chosen few? And if you're not, oh, well, shucks, I guess better luck next time or, or no luck at all. Well, how about we create some different kind of opportunities to see where do these kids shine? Like maybe those kids that, you know, got into the gifted, uh, the gifted class because, you know, they did really well on the test, you know, they're going to, you know, they did really well on the test and their, you know, their needs are met through these other opportunities. But what about the kids that are, you know, they're particularly bright, but perhaps they don't do well on tests. Does that mean that they're not deserving of other opportunities to challenge them? So I think that one, you know, providing the appropriate amount of challenge so that we're always right. It doesn't matter where you are on the achievement spectrum, right? It's this idea that, hey, as schools, our job should be to challenge you, right? To make you, as I, as I said the last time we spoke, uh, we're going to make you just a little bit, you know, we're going to make you more comfortable with the uncomfortable, that we're going to, you know, we're going to set the bar right above where you had previously grasped grasped it and say to them as as their teachers, as their mentors, I believe in you and I know that we can get you there. Uh, and then that way, it doesn't really matter what group you're in because we're treating everyone the same. We're all treating them to s- equally in the sense that you deserve challenge, regardless of what that challenge is for you, and we're going to help you get there. <laughs> and and that that's exactly the philosophy that our previous schools had with our kids and why we never felt like we needed to get my daughter that label because they said that exact thing. You deserve to be challenged and we're going to do what we can to get you there. And the big challenge with that, Grayson, is that it is it is really hard for a teacher with 30 kids in her class or 20 kids in her class to be able to know exactly where every single kid is. 
but it's not impossible and it's worth the effort and time to be able to do that because those kids deserve that accomplishment as well. Just like you were saying. That's right. Absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So then the question is, what do we do when we get kids who have been told they're dumb or not successful? How do we, how do we help them once, once we have that problem in front of us? Yeah. So I think, all right. So first of all, you know, let's just so that, you know, we're clear and as to, you know, say, you know, why this is valuable work and what's at stake here, because, you know, I've, I've heard the argument before that providing, let's say in the school that I, you know, was in, they had two tracks, basically the high functioning group and the low functioning group. And this was a particularly pronounced case in terms of what one group got to do and what another group got to do. And I have to imagine that that wasn't the only school in the, in the country that was operating like that. So in the low functioning group, just to give you an idea, right? Just to give you an idea of like how they would learn things differently. I actually had the, the privilege of being able to sit in on one science class and then directly after sit in on the other science class just because the way it was structured. Uh, I remember they were learning about the water cycle at one point in the year and the high functioning group were given iPads. They were able to work in groups collaboratively, communicate with one another, and they were, each group was given a different uh, aspect of the water cycle to uh, basically research. And when they were done with their research, they basically wrote up a report, uh, assigned roles within their group in terms of making a presentation, and then gave that presentation to the class so that they could in, inform the rest of the group what they learned. There are so many skills that you're developing uh, in, a, in an activity like that. You're developing teamwork, you're developing communication, you're developing research skills, you're developing you know, uh, being able to distill information so you can package it, all these kinds of things, right? Went over to the low-functioning classroom, and I couldn't believe what I saw. Honestly, like what happened there was their version of learning about the water cycle was a a YouTube video where the water cycle was basically turned into a rap and they were to memorize the lyrics of this water cycle rap song and then basically perform it uh, as a class. You know, so a complete lack of, uh, you know, teamwork, critical thinking of communication. It was, hey, perform this function and then do it again. Right. And then, you know, not only that, but it's it's devoid of any of those uh, higher order scientific skills that you would want to build in science class research, you know, distilling information, presenting of findings like this. They were robbed of the opportunity to even do that at all. And so anyway, that was that was just a quick anecdote. And the reason why I bring that up is because I want to just hammer home the point that, you know, not only was it, you know, just objectively bad that they weren't challenged clearly by that, but worse off or worse yet they were not uh, the students in the low functioning group they started to develop perceptions of self as inadequate and you know i'm not good enough i'm not smart enough and i know this because a lot of these these students outright told me that and so i think the way that we combat that it's okay to give you know different activities to different students that's not what the problem is what I think we need to do is, again, you know, find out where the, where the level is and set the bar just above it and then constantly reinforce these students, no matter where they're at on the, on the uh, ability spectrum, to say, we believe in you, you're capable, and you can do this. And then just providing them with the encouragement and the tools to be able to get there. And, you know, different students need uh, different amounts of encouragement. Different students need different tools. But, you know, we, as you said, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And it's definitely, definitely some of the most important work 
that we can do as educators to help encourage our young learners to say, this is challenging, but I believe in you and you got this. Yeah, that's that's really powerful. And Grace and I appreciate you you saying that. I think that is a great place to end because that is exactly what we need to do is inspire and encourage and support them because any learning that's worthwhile is difficult and challenging. And so, Grayson, thank you again for being part of Transformative Principle, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.